We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody, Steve with Cespedell and coming at you with episode 14 with Michael Graney on socialism with what happened to Vatican II. Was it what happened in Vatican II? What happened to what happened to Vatican II? Yes. Well, actually it's 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 all of it. It's what happened before Vatican II, what happened to Vatican II, and then what happened afterwards. Because and what we're gonna try to do is give the whole context being brief, in, in, in a sense. This whole series has been building up to to this climax because so many people are totally baffled by the Second Vatican Council. Some people say, "Oh, it must be accepted without error in as without error in exactly the way I understand it," or "We must reject it completely because I misunderstand it." Therefore, we must get rid of it. Well, if you, I think. If you put it in context and you approach it with an open mind, after of course viewing all our videos, uh, we will you will reach an appreciation of what John the Twenty Third tried to do, and then what really happened, and then of course this will segue into the final what I plan on being the final two videos of this series, what to do about it. That's the big question. And I mean, everybody knows, or at least most people who aren't, you know, living in la-la land will agree, we are in a mess today, whether religiously, civilly, or even domestically with the family, state, and church. But what do you do about it? Hmm. I mean, prayer is absolutely necessary, but I, this isn't in the Bible, but the Lord helps him who helps himself. If you're not willing to c carry out good works, then... What, why? It, the prayer was useless. As St. James said in his epistle, I mean, he says, show me your works without faith. You know, I, I mean, you, you... Show me your works, I'll show you I'm faith. Wrong. <laughs> yeah, show me your works, I'll show you your faith. Yeah, basically. And faith without works is, is dead. So basically, the whole idea of social virtue and social justice is to put it in put these things into action to prepare the environment so that people can become the people they were meant to be, to become virtuous in the Aristotelian sense. Maybe not in the prissy puritanical, you know, I do what I think is right and to heck with everybody else sense. Okay, so much for that commercial. We should get to the substance here. Anyway, basically everybody, I should stop saying basically, uh, because these things are pretty fundamental anyway, if you don't realize that, uh, well, you don't. Uh, everybody has a theory about the Second Vatican Council. It's like- That's the uh, understatement of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're gonna hear is my theory. And of course, since it's mine, it's the right one. Uh, but in my opinion, 
the, uh, most people don't have the full story of what happened to the Second Vatican Council. You can't really understand Vatican II and the reasons for it unless you know the whole story of the new things that built up to it. And of course, you can't understand Vatican II unless you understand Vatican I, the first Vatican Council, and why the first Vatican Council was called by Pius IX. And to do that, we'll briefly, I hope, recap you know, the, the lead in to Vatican II, which is what this whole series has been building up to, as I said. Now, the thing was that in the early 19th century, we saw the rise of the new things, what, what eventually became called socialism, modernism, and esotericism, the new age. And this was called by various names before it finally got labeled socialism. Uh, whether it's democratic socialism, religious socialism, utopian socialism, or even communism, it all has the same basic idea, which is that the whole, as St. Simon, Henri de Saint-Simon said back in 1825 in his book, The New Christianity, which was published posthumously, uh, says the whole of society ought to strive towards the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. Society ought to organize itself in the way best adapted for attaining this end. Now, that sounds good until you realize that what society was made for man, uh, yes, society was made for man, not man for society. The church was to help actual people, not humanity, prepare for their final end. The family was created or developed or came into existence. I'm not sure what the proper word is there. But the family, the purpose of the family as a social thing is to basically rear children, help them to prepare them to develop as adults and enter society so that they may become virtuous, virtuous adults. Uh, once you start focusing on abstractions such as humanity or the family as a vague thing or the state or the church as an abstraction and forget about the human person, then you've gone off track. Now, focusing on humanity and the family and the church and the state are all good things, but they are not the purpose. They're not in and of, they, they are not their own justification. They exist to help the person, each individual person develop and become more fully human, which is a long way of saying become virtuous. Now you may have endless discussions over what exactly virtue means, but the general principle is that the family, the state, the church or mosque or temple or whatever exist for one reason to assist people in becoming more fully human, virtuous. Now, one of the most serious problems with the new things in the early 19th century, aside from the fact that they existed at all, was the fellow named, the, the, the renegade priest named Huguet Felicité Robert de Lamennais, whom we, of course, will refer to as de Lamennais. And the big problem with him was something called the theory of certitude, which we covered in one of the earlier videos. 
essentially what Delamanet proposed was a shift from the dignity of the human person to the dignity of humanity as a whole. Reason did not reside in individuals, but in humanity as a whole. And according to his theory, which he held before he left the church and repudiated Christianity and his priesthood, was that only the Pope had the ability to discern truth. And everyone must accept what the Pope said infallibly, whether faith or morals, which is the proper understanding of infallibility, or in matters of philosophy and theology, where, frankly, those are sciences and the Pope can make mistakes, but not according to Delamanet. You must accept everything the Pope says in those areas, too. This is his theory of certitude, and you hold it by faith, not by reason. Well, what happened was that what this did was shift the focus from actual human persons, excuse me, <coughs> to an abstraction, humanity. Abstractions exist only in the minds of the people that create them. God does not abstract. St. Thomas Aquinas goes into this in some detail, which we won't, but because God is omniscient, knows everything, he doesn't have ideas in the human sense. He doesn't have to because he knows it completely, thoroughly, in a way that we can't even imagine. God's knowledge is such that it is absolutely perfect. There is nothing God doesn't know, and he created it. The only thing that God does not know directly, in other words, that he has uh, speculative knowledge, as the philosophers call it, about is himself. He knows everything else with practical knowledge. But the difference between God and man is that while man can have speculative knowledge about almost everything, well, actually about everything, because human knowledge is never perfect, God's knowledge, both practical and speculative, is so perfect, oh, I should say, is perfect, so that there's no distinction between his practical knowledge of everything except himself and his speculative knowledge of himself, so that God would never have to be told, know thyself. He knows himself perfectly through his absolutely perfect reason. He makes no, God does not make mistakes, so he knows everything perfectly so he doesn't have to abstract that's your that's your philosophy lesson for today anyway okay let me get back on track it's a good thing i have notes for these things or i'd never get back on track here okay and so what delamine's theory of certitude the effect for catholicism especially and for all more or less orthodox branches of christianity the that can be grouped as protestant is that there was a shift from into, it became from personalism, you know, focusing on the human person, to individualism and collectivism. In other words, individualism, thinking of the individual as purely as individual with no social nature, and collectivism that focuses on the social nature and rejects the individual nature. But remember, from the earlier videos, the discussion on what Aristotle called man as a political animal. 
We are both individual and social. And person is, in a sense, a social concept, whereas human being is an individual concept. But because every human being is, by nature, a person that is has rights, which are social things, every human being is automatically a human person as well, both individual and social. What Delamine's theory of certitude did was deny that. Human beings are only social and must accept on faith what the Pope says, which was a theory that the Popes rejected and contradictorily, I think that's a word, Delamine rejected the Pope's judgment. Well, his theory was that the Pope was infallible in all these things until he agreed with Delamine, in which case the Pope came fallible. And how many times have we seen that in the modern age, or any other age for that matter? So that what, what it means philosophically was that there was a shift from Aristotle and Aquinas to Plato and Augustine. Now, I have to qualify that, because it wasn't really the philosophy of St. Augustine, which was Platonic. What it was, as Monsignor Ronald Knox pointed out in his book on enthusiasm, and as I believe Chesterton did in St. Thomas Aquinas, the Dumb Ox, his book on Aquinas, was that what you had was a distorted Augustinianism. It wasn't really what St. Augustine was saying. It was what people wanted St. Augustine to have said, rather than what he actually said and meant. Because if you put St. Augustine into an orthodox framework, there's nothing wrong with it. You may, if you are approaching it from the wrong end, you will, of course, misinterpret it. But the main thing in the shift from Aristotle to Plato, or from Aquinas to a distorted Augustinianism, was that ideas have an existence independent of the human minds that create them. Well, in the sense that human beings have ideas, God doesn't have that kind of idea. With, with God, to, to think is to be. You don't create a, you know, the Platonic ideal off in the ether someplace, and then we try to copy it. No. What exists is what is. Ideas are real in a sense, but not real in the same way that we are real. They ex ideas exist only because we human beings create them. God does not create that kind of idea. And in a sense, doesn't create ideas at all in, in the human sense. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, I keep losing my voice. Now, what this shift to Platonism, which as I said, Chesterton noted, is that the, the new things, socialism and modernism, share characteristics, but in a sense, you could say there's no difference between socialism and modernism or even the new age. They take the same things for granted. They just develop them in different ways. In fact, as Chesterton said, and we, we quoted this before in an earlier video, it says anything can be called socialism. I'm not, I have no idea how, what Chesterton sounded like, so I can't imitate his voice, for which you should thank me. It seems to mean modernism in the sociological is distinct from the theological sense. 
In both senses, it is generally a euphemism for muddle-headedness. Now, there, I think Chesterton differed a little bit from Pius X. Chesterton thought that the socialists and the modernists were going off on a tangent because they were confused. Pius X thought that the socialists and the modernists were confusing in order to fool people. This is what he said in, I think it was Pascenti Dominici Gregis, the, en the encyclical on modernism. He said that the socialists and the modernists are deliberately deceiving people. That may be true in some cases, but I think that in many cases, it's the socialists and the modernists who are themselves confused, even when they think they are not being confused, and they think they have the clearest ideas of all. But in my opinion, I think it's because they really haven't heard or understood what the orthodox position truly is. They have a definite idea. And many socialists and moderners are honestly convinced they are the orthodox ones. And it's the other people who are you know, abandoning Jesus's true message or the, or the spirit of Vatican II or some such thing, however you want to phrase it. Now, politically, this had a serious effect because once you shift away from the human person and to the collective or to an elite, what you end up with is something that you could call liberal democracy. But depending on what you mean by those terms, it can mean something completely different from what someone else means by liberal democracy. See, these are human abstractions, ideas that human beings create and your idea of something may not be the same as my idea of something. For example, if I say dog, the image that pops into your head may be a chihuahua. The image that happens to pop into my head is a St. Bernard, simply because my mother kept St. Bernard's. So that's the image I have of dog. Two com both are dog, but I don't think people would confuse whether, an, whether one dog is a Chihuahua and the other one is a St. Bernard. <clears throat> now, this had serious effects in the development of political thought. It, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, categorized three different things called liberal democracy, one of which the Catholic Church actually endorses, the other two it condemns. Well, one it condemns, the other it criticizes. There is the French or European type of liberal democracy. The collective is sovereign. In other words, the people. Well, the Catholic Church condemns that and has condemned it several times. This is what the Catholic Church refers to in all these documents and encyclicals when it condemns liberalism. Now, religious liberalism is something else. This is political liberalism, which is as I said, three different kinds, the French or European type where the collective is sovereign, the Catholic Church condemns without qualification. And it's done so several times. And this is what is the type of liberal democracy that democratic socialism you know, is, comes under that condemnation because it's the collective, not the actual human person. And the whole point of Catholic social teaching is the dignity of the actual human person, not the dignity of humanity, which 
as we said in prior videos, the dignity of humanity as a whole is important, but it is not as important as the dignity of the actual human beings created by God. Humanity is an abstraction created by man, not God. Man, the human person, men, women, and children, are created by God, and therefore the dignity of each individual human person trumps that of the abstraction of humanity. Now, the second type of liberal democracy that de Tocqueville identified was, he called it the English type. This is where a political or an economic elite runs society. Walter Bagehot, for example, uh, in his book on the English constitution, his notion of democracy was that the moneyed class were the ones who should be running the country. And he built up this whole theory to explain why. And the ordinary person was basically not quite human, according to Walter Bagehot. And of course, Walter Bagehot's economics, as laid out in Lombard Street, a book he wrote in 1873, uh, the English Constitution was written in 1867, uh, was that an elite should be running everything. And Bagehot's economics heavily influenced those of John Maynard Keynes, which if you read Keynes's uh, treatise on money or his general theory or any of his other works, you'll notice something very odd if you're thinking in American liberal democratic terms, which is that according to Keynes, only an elite or the state should be running things for the people, including the economy. So, which I, I anticipated it slightly, to de Tocqueville, the third type of liberal democracy was the American type, which was what he observed in a qualified manner in the United States in the 1830s when he visited, which is the human person is sovereign. And we went into this at some length in a prior video, so I'll, I'll stop there, but it is the American type of liberal democracy that, <clears throat> Pius IX attempted to institute when he, when he became Pope in 1846 and tried to institute liberal reforms. Well, as far as the radical liberals, the European or French type of liberals were concerned, Pius IX was, must be a reactionary because he wasn't pushing the liberal democracy that they wanted. He was pushing the liberal democracy that he had observed. And he, very, he seems to have read de Tocqueville. In fact, de Tocqueville championed Pius IX when de Tocqueville was uh, foreign minister of the Second French Republic in the eight, early 1850s. He kept the radical liberals from, keep, uh, from trying to keep the Pope out of the Papal States when the French troops restored him. With an, another whole history right there. I'll get back on track now. <laughs> I can see the confusion on your face. <laughs> okay, you don't need to say anything. Uh, okay, let's see. Let me get back on track here. Okay, now because of the rise of the new things, you know, socialism, modernism, and the new age, what later became the new age, uh, Gregory XVI issued the first social encyclical in 1832. This was Mirare on liberalism and religious indifferentism. And he referred to... Uh, innovative things that were causing confusion in society. Now, what many people don't realize and may not even know is that a few, a short time before he issued Mirare Vos, 
he had condemned the Polish November uprising of 1830. And many people say, oh, this was the worst thing he did. He was uninformed. He, he, he made a serious mistake condemning that because all the Poles wanted was freedom from Russia. This was in the Russian section of what was left of, of Poland, which had basically disappeared from the map in 1795. Well, what nobody ever bothers to tell you is that a forged encyclical in Gregory's name had been circulated in Poland, urging the people to rise up and abolish kings and popes and czars and the whole political order and establish socialism. And there were quite a few people even for next couple of decades that accepted this forged encyclical as authentic. If that encyclical had not been circulated, it was called the golden book. And it was circulated under Gregory the 16th's name. And the priest who did it was sentenced by the Russians to the, the salt mines or the copper mines or something. But then he was finally released under an amnesty. And he still continued to try to implement socialism, claiming that Gregory the 16th had sanctioned it in this forged encyclical. So Gregory the 16th had to condemn the Polish uprising because it was carried out or at least justified, according to many people, because he had allegedly sanctioned it, which of course he had not. Now, when he followed this up a month or so later with Mirare Vos, which condemned you know, liberalism, meaning the French or European type of democratic liberalism, and religious indifferentism, which was the religious form of liberalism. You know, religious liberalism is basically all religions are the same, which means that all religions are equally true, which means that all religions are also equally false, which is a good way to create agnostics and atheists if that's what you're after, which some people may be after that. I don't know. I, I, I try to think that most people are honest. Uh, and honestly hold the opinions they do, but sometimes it, it, it's hard. <laughs> okay, I'll get back on track again after that short little discursive. Uh, anyway, okay. Two years after Mirare Vos, Gregory the Sixth. well, back up track, sorry. Delamine was so infuriated over the condemnation of the, Pol of, of the Polish November uprising and the fact that the Pope had actually met with him and told him to stop meddling in politics that he went off you know in a rage he finally left Rome after his two friends uh Lacordaire and Montalembert had already left saying we got what we wanted no no Delamine didn't want permission to continue his activities toning them down what he wanted was an endorsement of everything he was saying which of course the Pope couldn't possibly give so Delamine was so infuriated that he repudiated his priesthood. Uh, and I, I, the, the only word I can think of is repudiated Christianity, but uh, there should be another word in there. <laughs> anyway, he said he was no longer a priest and he was no longer a Christian. And then he invented his own religion. He called it a religion of humanity. So what he did was you know write vitriolic letters about the pope and then he wrote a pamphlet called words of a believer in which he condemned everything that he had previously supported 
And this became a very popular pamphlet. I can't say the French title. I, I think it's Le Parole des Croyants. We're, anyway, it's words of a believer if you speak French. Forgive me if you do. <laughs> the, uh, it, and it absolutely dripped venom up against the Pope and you know Orthodox Christianity of any form. And so what Gregory Sixteenth did was issue an encyclical, the second social encyclical in 1834 called Singulare Nos, in which he referred to rerum novarum, the new things, meaning socialism, modernism, and new age thought, which was what Delamonet was pushing uh, after completely abandoning, that was it, that was the word I wanted, abandoning Christianity, okay. You know, as I, as I, I think I said before, sometimes you think of these words at three o'clock in the morning, two days after you said, you said, I can't remember that word. What is it? I need it. <clears throat> and then you sound stupid as I do. Unfortunately, fortunately for you, it's not recorded and going out to the public. Now, to, to fast forward, the first Vatican Council was called precisely to counter the new things. Most people don't even realize this. In fact, a lot of people wonder, why was the First Vatican Council called anyway? Well, the specific reason was de Lamennais. They had to do something about this theory of certitude. A lot of people who were otherwise orthodox were inflating the idea of infallibility to go even beyond what de Lamennais said, which was bad enough. So the, the Two of the things that the council fathers did was first it, make it clear that reason was primary, that it was called the primacy of reason. If your faith is not based on reason, then there may be something wrong with it. Not must be, may be. The, and in fact, this was the first question in Aquinas' Summa Theologica. And what the council fathers said basically was, and I keep saying using that, I said I wasn't going to use that word basically, but of course I'm going to use it, was that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men, meaning every single human being, let's not get into that whole paternalistic language bit, we don't need it, that's another whole discussion which we won't get into, knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of men may be known by the force and light of human reason alone. So that faith, uh, the, the foundation of faith must be reason. Now, as Aquinas pointed out, most, and as Chesterton reiterated in his book on Aquinas, the dumb ox, uh, most people just don't have the time to figure this stuff out. So they will accept that on faith, but they have to acknowledge that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law can be proven by natural reason alone. Not that it has been. Mortimer Adler once got into an argument with Jacques Maritain and a couple other philosophers when he said that he didn't accept Aquinas's uh, proofs of God's existence. And they got into an argument with him, and he finally convinced them that what the Catholic Church teaches is not that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law has been proven, but that it can be. Now, for the record, I happen to accept Aquinas's five proofs of God's existence. 
I don't understand Adler's differences with it. I mean, when I read them, I thought, but that's what Aquinas is saying. But Adler was saying, no, no, this isn't what Aquinas is saying. And it went into some esoteric explanation. But Adler was not, uh, you know, dismissing the Catholic Church's teaching that reason alone can do this. What he was saying was he doesn't think it's been done yet until he did it, of course. <laughs> okay, let's get back on track again. Uh, how many times am I going to say this in this one? That's the, that's the problem with the recaps and is that, okay, you get so involved in the recap that you forget to get to the main point. We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, so what happened was that Pius IX realized that simple condemnation was, was not effective. This is what Gregory the, the, the 16th had tried. Uh, so what he did was try to educate. And that didn't work very well either. Uh, Pius IX is credited with, you know, doing great things with restructuring the church and missionary activity and founding dioceses and everything else. And there were many great saints who appeared during his pontificate. But he wasn't being as effective as he hoped in countering the new things. So he called the, Vatic, the, 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 the first Vatican Council to do so and, uh, you know, and get rid of the theory of certitude. So, and the Council Fathers defined the primacy of reason and what infallibility really meant, which was that under certain circumstances and, and conditions, the Pope speaks infallibly in matters of faith and morals, not matters of science. And remember, theology and philosophy are matters of science so that the Pope can make a mistake in a matter of theology, which I think it was, what was it, Pope Honorius IV or something. I, f I forget which one. But he accepted a weird theory about monothelitism, and don't ask what that is. It was back in the 7th century, I think. And theologians immediately jumped all over him and, you know, countered it. But, you know, perfectly honest commentators today say, well, this calls papal infallibility into question. No, it doesn't. It was a matter of science, not faith or morals. So uh, now we get to two. Let's see. Okay. And we covered the, uh, this is the trouble with getting off track. As I said, I get, I get ahead of myself on some of these points. So the first Vatican council, you know, defined the two key doctrines, primacy of reason and infallibility. And uh, I passed that. Uh, now, unfortunately, what happened was that uh, since there wasn't any, anything to, in, in civil society to uphold it, it, it wasn't having the effect that Pius IX had hoped. Now, when, uh, in 1878, when Leo XIII was elected, he attempted to continue Pius IX's education program. His very first encyclical was a condemnation of the new things. He didn't call it that. He, you know, focused on, you know, the problems of modern society. The second encyclical was uh, specifically, I think, on socialism. The third encyclical was a Patris, I, I think this is the order, uh, which was 
the way to educate people is not simply to, to say something's bad, but to set them within the right philosophical framework, which of course he said was that of Thomas Aquinas. Well, even that wasn't working. So in 1891, triggered by events in the United States, the, the New York City mayoral campaign of 1886, believe it or not, uh, with where Henry George ran for mayor, he was uh, supported by a semi-renegade priest named Father Edward McGlynn, who was later excommunicated for disobedience. Theodore Roosevelt was a fellow candidate in the, in the race until the Republican Party betrayed him and told them and told people to vote for the Democrats so that Henry George wouldn't get elected. And to this day, many people are of the opinion Roosevelt could have been elected if the GOP hadn't told them to vote for the Democrat. Um, politics as usual. They're going to cut their own throats. Anyway, in 1891, after four years at least of you know work and study, Leo XIII issued Rerum Novarum, new things, hearkening back to what Gregory XVI had said in the second social encyclical in 1834. See, a lot of people think that Leo XIII was the one who coined the term Rerum Novarum. No, he was specifically referring to what Gregory XVI had done when the problem was just coming to the attention of the church and Catholic social teaching started developing as a discrete field of its own. And so Rerum Novarum was not the first social encyclical, but it was the first encyclical to really scare the pants off the socialists because it gave a specific program that countered what the socialists were trying to do. And this threw them into a panic. Uh, there was massive uh, uh, spin doctoring. Henry George wrote a book that was longer than the encyclical itself called On the Condition of Labor, explaining in great detail how Leo XIII didn't understand Catholic social teaching, but he, Henry George, the non-Catholic, did. Uh, the, the, the French socialist, uh, Marie-Eugène Melchior, and I just mispronounced those things horribly, Vicomte de Vogue, and I did that again, he was the leader of the, the new Christian or the neo-Catholic movement. Uh, he did a magnificent job of spin doctrine. Uh, he convinced a lot of people, in fact, that Rerum Novarum was not a condemnation of socialism, but was actually a new socialist manifesto, even better than that of Marx, the, you know, the communist manifesto in 1848. I mean, that was brilliant. I mean, how could, but then what happened later was that, uh, you know, people like Monsignor John A. Ryan, you know, took the ball and ran with it. What they forget was that Raymond Novarum was actually a defense of natural law and a condemnation of socialism and modernism. Uh, didn't mention the new age because that was still recognized at that time, at least as, as a fringe, as a bunch of fringe elements. Although it can, it got really wild when you get into Madame Blavatsky and theosophy and what was it, Elias, no, Elias Levy or Elias, Elias Levy, which was a made-up name. He's the guy that came up with the Baphomet, you know, that satanic statue in, in Oklahoma City, I think it is. Uh, that was uh, Levy's 
uh, not his real name. That was his icon or, or idol for the new or the universal Catholicism. I'm not making that up. So it wasn't intended as a satanic idol, but I mean, pretty much Levy's stuff was that. Uh, so what, Leo, what uh, Ray Rom Novara really did was it was a change in tactics from simple condemn. Yes, he did condemn socialism, and he tried to educate people in orthodoxy, but he also proposed a specific program. There was unfortunately a flaw in his program, or I should say an omission. It wasn't, it wasn't flawed. It was he omitted an important thing, a financially feasible way of bringing about the, the universal capital ownership that he called for in paragraph 46 of Ray Romovarum. What he said was that if a workman's wages be sufficient, he will find it easy to practice thrift and he will not fail to put by some little savings and thus secure a modest source of income. Well, unfortunately, if you raise wages without a corresponding increase in productivity, all you've done is, is increase costs, raise the price level, and the workmen and the consumers end up paying more and getting less. So it's not really a viable way. The real way, we, we, as we noticed in the last video, was if you finance new capital formation out of future savings, that is future increases in production, instead of past reductions in consumption, then everyone can become an owner. But we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Now, what the spin doctors did to Leo XIII was that uh, they basically changed natural law and liberal democracy into fascist socialism and modernism. I mean, and as I said, it was done brilliantly. Uh, and I just got to, okay, now I found out where I said. Now, Henry George, the Fabians, uh, Emile Durkheim, Monsignor Ryan, they all distorted natural law and Catholic teaching and liberal democracy. And this is, this is one reason, if not the main reason, why the popes were so insistent. And Pius X worked very hard to condemn uh, modernism and socialism. He was no friend of either. He could work with socialists and modernists, but not very far. Uh, if it was for the greater good and it was clearly not a compromise with their ideas, he could work with them. But at the same time, you have to realize that this was before the Lateran Treaty in 1929 and the papacy was still under siege from the Kingdom of Italy. So you were under siege politically and doctrinally and probably economically as well. I mean, it's always economic. <laughs> But Pius X and Benedict XVI also tried. But you may have heard about World War I. It was in all the papers. That kind of prevented him from actually being able to do anything. Although his first encyclical in 1914, uh, and I the, the name slips out of me, but slips by me, but he blamed the war on the new things. And I think he made a very good case for it. Uh, now, unfortunately, even though Pius X, you know, condemned modernism, as did Benedict 
the 16th, and then in his first encyclicals, you know, Pius XI, it didn't really solve the problem. Even though Pius X instituted the oath against modernism, of which the first clause or first provision, I'm not, I'm not sure of the right word there, was that I affirm that knowledge of God's existence under the natural law may be known by human reason alone. It's amazing how often they go back to reason for these things and try to get away from this fideism, which is so rampant today. Uh, and apparently in prior days too. The problem was that they didn't uh, you know, get rid of socialism and modernism. It took refuge in this new field of Catholic social teaching, which in those days was less than 100 years old. Uh, keep in mind, the first social encyclical was not issued until 1832. Uh, so actually, you know, Pius XI, when he issued Quadragesimo Anno, which is 40 years after, could have waited a few months and issued it 100 years after, but that probably would have confused a lot of people since most people weren't aware of the first social encyclical, even at that time. Uh, what, you know, everyone kept trying to hold the line, but it wasn't until Pius XI that you had another breakthrough of the magnitude that Leo XIII did with his, with his change in tactics. This was with Quadragesimo Anno and Divini Redemptoris, as well as the whole body of his social encyclicals. And these were, in my opinion, in part, a response to Monsignor John A. Ryan of the Catholic University of America, who had completely reoriented Catholic social teaching to be socialist and fascist. Uh, as which we covered in a number of the previous videos, by the way. Uh, we are coming up to the point, we're almost finished with our recap. So, <laughs> as I said, the danger of recaps. Uh, now, it was Ryan who, Ryan and Co Fathers Ryan, Monsignor Ryan and Father Coughlin were basically used by, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to justify the New Deal and to make it sound as if the New Deal was Catholic, which it wasn't. We covered all of this. Uh, but the real problem with, with, the, with the worldwide church was that, you know, as Fran, you know, under Hitler, because of World War II, Social Catholicism in Germany and Austria was, was completely eliminated. Uh, there were no independent movements in Italy, Spain, or Portugal. Uh, and basically, the only thing that was left was, you know, the place where Monsignor Ryan ruled with an iron fist, which was over Catholic social teaching in the United States. And remember, we covered that in, I think it was number seven, what he did to Fulton Sheen. You know, he just basically eliminated him. Anybody who got in Monsignor John A. Ryan's way could expect to be, you know, liquidated, shall we say, morally or whatever. So that Franz Miller said that perhaps the only nation in which the Catholic social movement and a movement it now was could continue to operate with almost undiminished vigor was in the, was the United States. Now, Franz Miller was a student of Heinrich Pesch and his book on Catholic social teaching uh, pretty much showed all the flaws that Monsignor Ryan managed to insert into our understanding of Catholic social teaching, which as far as he was concerned, even though it claimed to be solidarist and everything else, it wasn't. 
and that was the problem. Okay, now we're finally getting into, you know, Vatican II. What happened at the Second Vatican Council? <laughs> yes, heavy sigh of relief there. Now, uh, you know, I had come to this conclusion independently that John the Twenty-Third chose his name because of John the Twenty-Second back in the 14th century. Why? Because John the 22nd was the Pope who got stuck with dealing with the Fraticelli, you know, proto-socialists. They wanted to abolish society. They were the true sons of St. Francis of Assisi, who managed, as Chesterton claimed in his book on St. Francis of Assisi, they completely changed what St. Francis was talking about. They turned him into uh, basically an anarchist and someone who wanted an, and a socialist, and in a certain sense, a fascist, which being a, a fascist and an anarchist are not necessarily incompatible, believe it or not. Because if you think that your way is right, so there are just some people who want to force it on everyone else, which of course requires fascism so that you can tell the people the right way to live according to you. Now, I had come to that conclusion that John the 23rd chose his name because of John the 22nd and to emphasize the fact that he was going to take the bull by the horns and carry through on what prior popes had tried to do and counter the new things of socialism, modernism, and new age. And the new age was really starting to take hold at this point. You wouldn't believe some of the weird stuff that was happening in the 1920s and 30s, or actually maybe you would. Uh, but according to Evelyn Waugh, you know, the, the British convert who wrote those horrible books that you love to read. Uh, if, you, if you don't read anything else, read The Loved One. It's horrifying. It's about the funeral industry in Southern California. At least the Jews and the Catholics get off the hook on that when, because in a, in a single sentence, says that the Jews and the Catholics weren't involved in any of this weirdness because they had their own cemeteries. <laughs> so we got off on that one. Okay. According to Evelyn Waugh, however, John the Twenty-Third chose his regnal name as a sign that he continued. He was going to continue the work of John the Twenty-Second. And I, when I read that, I thought, I can't believe that Evelyn Waugh agrees with me. He didn't agree with anybody. Uh, so now, the whole idea of, and this is my reading of it, of course, says the whole idea of Vatican II was to restart the struggle against the new things that had been halted by the Great Depression and the whole thing with the whole New Deal, you know, being authentic Catholic, you know, an application of authentic Catholic doctrine. Baloney. It wasn't. Uh, and of course, but we covered that at some length in a prior video. See, this is why you have to binge watch these things. You know, be sure you have enough supplies on hand to be able to do it. What is it? How, how, what do we got now? About 16 or 17 hours of this stuff? Uh, try to stay conscious through the whole things. Actually, try to stay conscious through one of these. Uh, anyway, the whole idea of Vatican II was to restart, you know, the struggle against the new things that had been halted by, you know, the Great Depression, which was actually the Third Great Depression, and World War II, and to reassert personalism over individualism and collectivism. Now, personalism was not a widely used term in the Catholic sense prior to John Paul II. Uh, what most people thought of as personalism had been like, for instance, Emmanuel Meunier's, which was, once you get into it, 
you realize, wait a minute, he's talking about personalism without persons. Because he was, he, he described himself as an anarcho-Catholic. Well, so what you're saying is get rid of society, but person is a social concept. So you're talking about personalism without persons in your personalist manifesto. Now, we again come to the big problem in the Second Vatican Council from my perspective. From many people's perspective, it's, it's the language. Well, the language of, this, of, you know, of the council documents has perfectly acceptable orthodox meanings. If you approach it from an orthodox perspective, you will end up in an orthodox place. A lot of what is, you know, a lot of the so-called reforms that allegedly came out of the council, you're not going to find them anywhere in those council documents. You won't. If you can, show me. For instance, where does it say to replace Latin with the vernacular? Not that I speak Latin at all well. I mean, I only had a year of it. But nowhere in the council documents does it say anything about abolishing Latin. Nowhere does it say anything about women's ordination. Nowhere does it say anything about a lot of things. In fact, you'll find just exactly the opposite. But there was a problem. How do you get people to do their job, the lay apostolate, if they don't have any power? And how do you get power if they don't have private property in capital? Power naturally and necessarily follows property, as Daniel Webster pointed out exactly 100 years ago in the Massachusetts Constitution. Const <laughs> sorry, Constitutional Convention of 1820. We won't get into that. We did already. Uh, the big problem was that pretty much the world was in the grip of Keynesian economics by this time. I mean, Keynes had seized domination of the world. He was, even though he was dead by then. Uh, and Keynesian economics is once you really look at it and understand it, it's exactly the opposite of Catholic social teaching and things like Chesterton and Bellock's distributism. Because it assumed as a given, wealth must be concentrated. It assumed that people can only gain their income from wages. It assumed that human labor was the sole source of all production. And of course, every single one of these things can be proven wrong. But Keynesian economics was, was the foundation of the New Deal, which many people were convinced was authentic Catholic teaching in action. Of course, they also say a lot of things are Catholic teaching in action. They always tend to be socialist. But I, I think Major Douglas's social credit, which social creditors still assert is not socialism, well, the Fabian socialists and the Guild socialists, out of which Major Douglas spun off from, that's lousy syntax. But they all said, oh, yes, social credit is socialism. It, but it's also Christianity in action. Well, not really. I am not impugning Major Douglas's honesty. He honestly believed this. But he was wrong. And we'll get to that in a, possibly in a future series of videos when I, when I tell why, just like Henry George, why I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Now, the big problem was with Vatican II, from my perspective, we're not going to get into doctrine. Uh, Vatican II did not present a solution. 
And that allowed adherents of the new things, the socialists, the modernists, and the new agers, to seize control. Because when all you're saying is, wouldn't it be great if, then someone says, here's how we can do it. If we just, you know, change a few things in doctrine, change a few other things. And the problem is that what was given in the encyclicals was taken, uh, you know, the, the expedients that were supposed to help people in the interim, you know, to keep them alive before the restructuring of the social order could take place and people could become, you know, productive, uh, you know, take care of themselves through their own efforts. So many people took the expedience as the permanent solution, which of course is not going to work. The expedience may be necessary. It's, it's like a tourniquet. Sometimes a tourniquet is absolutely essential to save someone's life. But if you leave it on, you're going to kill somebody. I mean, the expedient is not the solution. And as a result, to justify taking expedients as solutions, as permanent solutions, they had to change doctrine to conform to this. So that changes in doctrine that never actually happened were taken for granted as if they had. I mean, there are a lot of people today who think that they're giving you authentic Catholic teaching based on solid doctrine who have, are actually taking modernism and socialism and even some new age stuff as, you know, I mean, in a prior video, we showed that Monsignor John A. Ryan was heavily influenced by the new age through Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. And that was one wild video. I, I, I still get people commenting on that and say, I can't believe he did this. Look at it, he did. And so all this stuff was, they, they tried to justify it by the spirit of Vatican II. Now you, you've seen the costumes, somebody dressed in a bed sheet with a sign around that says spirit of Vatican II, boo. You know, <laughs> that, that's about it. It's, a, it's as ephemeral as, as a phantom. Actually, it's even more ephemeral because maybe phantoms have actual existence, but not the so-called spirit of Vatican II. I, I got to tell you. Actually, I don't got to tell you, you know this. <laughs> now, the real irony, however, is that, as we saw in the last video, it was in 1958, before the council even started, that someone did present a solution on how you could implement, you know, the restructuring that Pius XI and Leo XIII were, were talking about. Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler published their two books, The Capitalist Manifesto, followed up in 1961 with The New Capitalists. Lousy titles, what they described was not capitalism. What they showed was how people without savings and without enough income could purchase capital. They could gain power over their own lives. The reason for stressing private property so much in Catholic social teaching is not the income although that is important. It's the power. People become empowered to take control over their own lives. And in the Catholic sense, once you have power over your own life, you can use that power, presuming you're guided by your properly formed conscience, to become more virtuous. Income is secondary, important, but secondary to the real reason why the church stresses 
You must grow up. You must become a full person. You must become a capital owner, not a slave. I mean, it was Leo XIII and Pius XI both spoke of the yoke of slavery, that people who are not owners are to all intents and purposes slaves. And this was, comes from Aristotle. He called nominally free people who were, did not own capital masterless slaves because they didn't even have the dignity that was reflected on an actual slave by the slave's owner. They were nothing, according to him. One of the most remarkable and indeed to the ancient mind shocking things that Jesus did was to treat propertyless free people as if they were actual real human persons. I mean, this was astonishing to people. I mean, you don't own anything. Nobody owns them. They're nothing. But Jesus treated them as they were real people. In other words, we are all human and human in the same way as all other humans. So we should all have access to the means of acquiring and possessing property so that we can become fully virtuous. And for whatever end, I mean, as a Catholic, I think that our true end is to be with God in heaven. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're not going to be able to reach whatever end that you are fitted for or fitting yourself for if you don't have any power to exercise it, and you're not going to have any power if you're not an owner. So what happened was that the reforms that have been blamed on the Second Vatican Council were actually the same sort of thing that were following the First Vatican Council. I mean, let's go to McGlynn, Edward, Father Edward McGlynn. He and his uh, friend, Father Richard Burtzel, if you look at the, some of the stuff they were proposing, you'd say, wait a minute, this was this the 1970s or the 1870s? Because, for example, McGlynn and Burtzel, they wanted to abolish Latin. They wanted to abolish traditional religious garb. I mean, one of the, McGlynn thought it was terrible that the Vatican had decreed that people should wear the Roman collar. I mean, priests should wear the Roman collar. He thought this was disgusting. Priests are dressed just like everybody else so, so that, uh, you know, they can be with just the guys, you know. Uh, they were for the ordination of women. See, this is nothing new. People think that all this stuff came out of Vatican II. No, it didn't. It's been around for quite a while. Uh, and of course, they wanted to adopt modernist doctrines and promote socialism. I mean, the reason Father McGlynn was excommunicated was not because he was a socialist and advocating ordination of women and abolition of clerical garb and all these other things. It was because he was called to the Vatican to explain what he was doing, and he refused to go. This, of course, was a month after he complained that he had not been given a chance to have his say at the Vatican. Therefore, his condemnation you know, from his archbishop was wrong. So, of course, he was given the chance, and he refused to go, and then complained about that when he was excommunicated for not going. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. Uh, now, this is why, you know, most analyses of Vatican II and one of the best ones is Dr. Ralph McInerney's What Went Wrong with Vatican II. He assumed as a given that what happened was that, uh, you know, everything had started with Vatican II. And 
in a sense, he was right. The most recent phase did begin with Vatican II, but it was simply a continuation of what had already started with Vatican I, and had, which had started with what had happened with socialism and modernism in the early 19th century. So that the problems did not start with Vatican II. It was just simply the latest. It was, it, it was when the socialists and the modernists and the New Agers had their big chance. In other words, we're going to be changing things. Let's change them. And, of course, what they changed were all the wrong things. And this was, of course, thanks to Monsignor John A. Ryan. I mean, I'm tired of mentioning him, but his influence was enormous, and it remains so today. Uh, these, thanks to, to Monsignor Ryan, the, the new things were so deeply embedded in Catholic culture uh, that there was automatically a spirit of dissent especially at the Catholic University of America, which then surfaced with Curran, Father Curran, now ex-Father Curran, I guess. Didn't he become an Episcopalian or something? So he disappeared somewhere. And of course, known fama ex ecclesia. There's no, there's no notoriety once you leave the church. So he faded from the scene the moment he couldn't be a rebel against the injustice of the Catholic Church. Uh, now, the, the spirit of dissent, especially at the Catholic University, which was established in order to counter this sort of thing, uh, ensured that what Monsignor Ronald Knox called enthusiasm, you know, the, the, the charity that is so great that it leads to dissent, because you forget justice and all the other virtues. It's an excess of charity that causes disunity, the way he said it. And the enthusiasm and hypocrisy would spread everywhere and all people had to do was cite the spirit of Vatican II, which had absolutely nothing to do with what they were talking about. And instead of the reign of Christ the King, which was what Pius XI was trying to work for, and we went into that in some length in a prior video, the demand was that the council bring about the socialist, modernist, and new age kingdom of God on earth. We were going to create the perfect society here. Well, this was nothing more than what the socialists and the modernists and the new agers had been demanding for the past 150 years and now 200 years. They all want to create the perfect society. We're going to have utopia. And it's not just the utopian socialists. It's all of them. We are going to make heaven on earth. Even if you don't believe in heaven, even if you don't believe in God, we're going to make it here on earth. And of course, the reaction tended to focus on changes in, in form. You know, most more people were upset over abandoning Latin than in the abandonment of doctrines that had been changed a couple decades before by Ryan. But it was covered up. They didn't understand the sometimes subtle difference between socialism and social justice, which, as we saw in prior videos, there is a huge difference but most people won't understand it. Chesterton said something like that in uh, his book on Aquinas, again, to drag that up, when he was talking about the, you know, the, the big debate between Sigur of Brabant and Aquinas. He said, most people won't understand why Aquinas and Sigur of Brabant were arguing. And some of them, even after they read Chesterton, still don't understand it. But this is why these things why the church probably needs new teachers at this point more than 
just about anything else because what they're doing is either trying to cover up mistakes, which of course is always a mistake in itself, or trying to carry on something they don't understand rather than trying to understand it and teaching authentic doctrine. Uh, that's, that's the commercial for this period. Uh, so, but, so the reaction, they focused on changes in form instead of substance. And this let the modernists and the socialists get away with changes in substance undetected. I mean, when you're you know, ranting and raving about women's ordination and this, that, and the other thing, uh, no one's going to quarrel. Any Orthodox Catholic is not going to go along with a demand for women's ordination. So why argue too much about it? If somebody wants ordinate, you know, women ordained, well, then leave the church. Go do what you want. And anyway, that's so much for that. Uh, now, the problem was that the modernists and the socialists were also helped immensely by splits among Catholics, you know, especially the Orthodox Catholics, and by fideism. You know, the idea that all this is based on faith, faith, not reason. You may lose faith by, by doing this. but uh, And so what you had was a shift. And I've seen this even among people who consider themselves the most orthodox, is that there was a shift from faith and reason to faith or reason. And even the people who claim that they're doing faith and reason really aren't. They're going by faith because they're twisting their reason to fit what they've already accepted by faith, which may not be consistent with reason and what, what the Catholic Church actually teaches. Now, one of the most damaging results of this was utter, utter chaos. And it was you know spread by the adherents of the new things. And this created parties in the Catholic Church. We had not really had them prior to Vatican II. This did not mean that it was because of Vatican II. It was because Vatican II gave these people the opportunity. When you start calling for change and they start going for the change that they want rather than change within the prescribed parameters, then you can get everything going on. And this actually happened in the church, is what happened in the Church of England. And yeah, it, it was about that time that you started to have recognized parties in the you know high church, low church, uh, whatever, all these things. But, and, th and this was described in uh, a uh, William Hurl Malick's book. Uh, what was it? Uh, I wrote it down, the title. Uh, don't go away. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, Doctrine and Doctrinal Disruption. Uh, which came out in 1900, describing the nuttiness of the various parties in the Church of England. Now, there was a rumor that Malik, before he died in 1922, converted to Catholicism. No, he didn't. He kept fighting to the end of his days to try to get the Church of England back on track, which Chesterton finally realized was, was hopeless, and he converted in 1922, and Malik died in 1922. Probably no connection. But Doctrine and doctrinal disruption was so convincing that it helped, you know, Robert Hugh Benson, the guy who wrote Lord of the World and a bunch of other novels that Catholics love, especially when they don't understand them. Uh, it helped, you know, get rid of his last uh, qualms 
before converting to Catholicism from the Church of England. And Benson's father was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England. Oh, excuse me, the religious head of the Church of England, the political head. Let's see, when that was Edward VII, I think. You know, the king or queen is the head of the Church of England. Anyway, makes everything okay. Uh, so what caused Newman, you know, the formation of parties was one of the things that caused Newman to realize he could not remain a Christian and be in the Church of England at the same time. Uh, if you read, you know, anything about Newman and his biographies, it wasn't that he was always a Catholic. The fact was he was always a Christian. But he thought until the 1840s that he could stay a Christian and be in the Church of England until they made it absolutely crystal clear, no, you can't. You, either you go along with the fact that we have different beliefs in the Church of England, some of which are not even Christian, or you get out. And he actually felt himself forced to convert, which is why he had a gigantic sigh of relief when he finally decided to become Catholic. And he didn't want to. But when he, re when he did convert, he realized it was because he had to. And after that, he said, I came to my rest, and there I stayed. <laughs> Not that he became, you know, comatose or anything. Some of his best work was after he became a Catholic, but his conflict was over. This is why converts speak of coming home. Unless, of course, they convert in order to change the church, but that's another issue. <laughs> now, of course, the long-term problem was people changing doctrine, claiming it's the spirit of Vatican II. The immediate problem, of course, was money. And there was confusion about the meaning of money, and there was a bad theory of how money is created and errors about money, credit, banking, and finance. And the problem was that if you couldn't solve the money problem, you were not going to solve the, the problem of private property, which was not everybody could have it. The way Keynes had things structured, only the rich could own or and only the state could control, which is not what the Catholic Church wanted. The Catholic Church wants people to be adults not permanent slaves or dependents of the state or of, a, of an employer someplace. So to understand, we'll have a brief course in money here. And after I'm finished in the, over the next five minutes, you'll realize you know everything about money. Right. I don't know everything about money, but I know enough to know that what a lot of people know isn't quite right. I'll give you Lewis Kelso's definition of money. And as I said, I hate to give extended quotes, but I think it's, it's worthwhile in this instance. This, money is not a part of the visible sector of the economy. People do not consume money. Money is not a physical factor of production, but rather a yardstick for measuring economic input. Remember that. Uh, economic outtake and the relative values of the real goods and services of the economic world. Money provides a method of measuring obligations, rights, powers, and privileges. It provides a means whereby certain individuals can accumulate claims against others or against the economy as a whole or against many economies. Now, right now, you're, you're, if you're paying attention to this and starting to grasp the implications, you'll realize that when people talk about, you know, well, the state should issue more money or we should do this, that, or the other thing, they're on a run wrong track. 
And as Kelso concluded, he says, money, or it, is a system of symbols that many economists substitute for the visible sector and its productive enterprises, goods, and services, thereby losing sight of the fact that a monetary system is a part only of the invisible sector of the economy and that its adequacy can only be measured by its effect upon the visible sector. Uh, now, that is a little esoteric, so I'll summarize that. What you've got is a conflict between bad monetary theory versus good monetary theory. And I use good and bad advisedly because things aren't good or bad. Uh, it's, all, it's what we do with them. Now, bad currency principle is, the, 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 the bad monetary theory is called the currency principle. That is, money is a commodity. The quantity of money determines the level of economic activity. Uh, the good monetary theory is called the banking principle, which is that money is a measure of commodities. It is not itself a commodity. Remember Kelso's definition. The level of economic activity determines the quantity of money. It's not the other way around. The currency principle, which is the one used by all the politicians and economists today, and why the economy is so screwed up, and why we have enormous debts throughout the world is that they think first you create money and then you do stuff with it. No, no. Doing stuff creates money. Uh, you can summarize this with what is called the quantity theory of money equation. And you're, you're not ready for this, but it's, it's M times V equals P times Q. M is the quantity of money. And according to the currency principle, now, this is where your algebra from high school comes in handy. As you learned in algebra, you can only have one dependent variable per equation. In other words, everything else in the equation determines what that one variable, dependent variable means. All the others are independent variables. Well, in the quantity theory of money equation under the currency principle, you have three dependent variables and one equation, which means that what you have is a meaningless statement. Under the banking principle, what you have is one dependent variable, the quantity of money, which is determined by transactions or the, the level of economic activity. That completely confused you, but to explain it, I'd have to go on at greater length about something, but the bottom line here is that the people who say who think that you need government debt to back money so that you can invest or that you need the rich to have pile, money piled up in order to finance new capital, that's wrong. The capital itself, the people make agreements, create the money they need, and then get rid of the money. But money is just a promise to do something. That's all. Uh, now, the problem of money itself, however, was, is only a symptom of the underlying problem of modernist changes in doctrine. As I said, the long-term problem is that they changed what, what reality is, or at least they thought they had, convincing a lot of people that reality is something other than it is. And this was had got managed to get entrenched because of Monsignor John A. Ryan as authentic Catholic doctrine. And of course, John Maynard Keynes and his economics, he probably never even knew who the heck Ryan was, but they were talking about the same type of things. And because of the New Deal, and because 
the, the weird ideas of Ryan and the weird ideas of Keynes meshed so completely that we can paraphrase, you know, St. Jerome about what he said about the Arian heretics in, the, what was it, the fourth century? Uh, says, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Keynesian after World War II. It's like, what happened? Prior to, 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 to the advent of the, of the New Deal and Keynes, you actually found economics textbooks talking about the banking principle and actually knowing what they were talking about. Afterwards, people can't even tell you what the banking principle is. In other words, you don't first create money and then hope something happens. No, you start doing things and the money is the way you do it. As I said, but that's another whole video and going to great length. Now, as a result, uh, what you had was that following Vatican II, you had socialists and their theories start to be interpreted as authentic Catholic doctrine. I mean, you had, for example, R.H. Tawney and E.F. Schumacher, who were Fabian socialists. There are people to this day who claim they converted to Catholicism because after they read R.H. Tawney's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which is an anti-Catholic screed. And you have people who have read E.F. Schumacher saying, oh, well, he, he became a Catholic, didn't he? Well, why he did, I don't know. That's a personal decision on his part. But I do know that what is contained in his two books, Small is Beautiful and A Guide for the Perplexed, is not Catholicism, it's Fabian Socialism. And they have become the prophets of post-Vatican II Christianity. I, the, the American bishops uh, pastoral in 1986 even cited Schumacher as, as an authentic Catholic source. But he was a socialist. Catholic social teaching condemns socialism. And of course, not to overuse the word irony, but it is ironic that many distributists, for example, take E.F., you know, R.H. Taney and E.F. Schumacher as their books are holy writ, better than the Bible. You must understand the Bible in light of Taney and Schumacher, not Schumacher and Taney in light of the, the Bible. Now, where... Uh, one of the biggest problems with, and by the way, Schumacher was a protege of Keynes. I mean, they knew each other. He was his student. And Keynesian economics is based on everything that, for instance, Pope Francis is against, but he's trying to do it by using Keynesian economics. Uh, waste is a way of life for the developed world. Keynes thought, it doesn't matter. In fact, waste is good. Consumerism is good. Uh, and this should be applied to the undeveloped world too, so that you can, you know, we need materialism, we need consumerism, we need waste. And redistribution is, is great. That's why you should, you know, inflate the currency because that redistributes purchasing power. And it's also a way of shifting purchasing power after you've given it to consumers and workers by inflating the currency, you shift it back to producers so that workers get less for more, and producers get more for less. The perfect system, except it doesn't work. And it's ethically unsound and me mechanically not feasible. 
Uh, so that basically socialism and modernism trumped orthodoxy in all respects. It, it is the most surreal thing. Now we're finally on the home stretch here. And actually this is, this, this is an extended conclusion here. I, I can see the sigh of relief here. Uh, if you really want to restore a sustainable green economy, Keynes is not the answer, trust me. Uh, what you need to do is actually go back to the classical economists as improved by people like Kelso and Pius XI and Leo XIII. Uh, you need to abandon Keynesian economics. You need to restructure the monetary system. In other words, shift from past savings, you know, past reductions in consumptions, which ensures that only the rich or the government can finance new capital and shift to future savings, that is future increases in production that you can make a promise out of and use that for money. That's what future savings is. We're, we're using it now on the promise that we're gonna repay it in the future out of what we, out of future increases in production. It's a much better system. Past savings should be used for consumption. Future savings should be used for new investment. You don't reduce consumption Otherwise, there's no reason to finance new capital. Why would you increase new, you know, why would you produce more if there's no market for it? And the big thing, and Jean-Baptiste Say of Say's Law of Markets only hinted at this in his formulation of Say's Law, but you need to universalize opportunity and means to become, for everyone to become an owner of capital. This is actually in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was drafted by George Mason, who, although not a Catholic, seems to have been very strongly influenced by the political theory of St. Robert Cardinal Bellarmine. And Mason, who was plagiarized by Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson took a lot of what was in the Declaration of Independence from the, Decla from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, except for private property. Largely, in my opinion, and in that of other people, because the Southern slave owners didn't want the question of private property to come up when you're talking about freedom for all people. It got a little bit of hypocrisy there, which does not detract from the truth of what they said or the greatness of what they did, but it does detract from their own greatness, if you want to put it that way. Now, the problem that we face in the Catholic Church and outside the Catholic Church at this point is how do you get these ideas and the true understanding of Vatican II to Catholics and others? And this is basically our conclusion for today's presentation is that one of the things that is going to have to happen is that the church is going to have to stop scolding people. I mean, a lot of these encyclicals or at least the people interpreting them for us, come across as just shaking their finger at you, condemning you without saying, you know, what they're doing is they're driving people out of the church. And I mean, if all you hear is condemnation of the rich, condemnation of the developed countries, condemnation of this, that, and the other thing, and uh, you must give up your wealth, you must give up this, you must give up that. Well, yeah, that sounds really good if you're the person receiving it, but what do I get out of it? Why am I even staying in this? And in fact, John Paul II addressed this precise issue in 1999 
in an address to the bishops of North and South America. It's called Ecclesia in America. Excuse me. <coughs> and it's paragraph 67. He says, love for the poor must be preferential, but not exclusive. I mean, if all you do is chant the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, well, yeah, but what about the rest of us? It says, the Synod Fathers observed that it was in part because of an approach to the pastoral care of the poor, marked by a certain exclusiveness, that the pastoral care for the leading sectors of society has been neglected, and many people have thus been estranged from the church. Yeah, surprise, surprise. If all you do is cuss out somebody for not, you know, for being lousy and scum and everything else, guess what? They're not going to stick around. And what you wanted to, even what you wanted to do isn't going to be done, much less what needs to be done, which is we need to restructure the social order so that poverty is not the usual state of affairs for so many people. And how do you do that? You make them productive. You don't just redistribute what somebody else has, which may be necessary. And in fact, today is extremely necessary just to keep things going, but it's not a solution. You have to restructure matters so that people can become productive on their own and take care of themselves out of their own efforts. So that the church must once again be, you know, teach true principles of justice, not this mishmash that John Ryan came up with, Monsignor Ryan. And it must be justice understood that is both individual and social, and it has to purge the church of socialist, modernist, and new age, just garbage, detritus. Now, what is the real message of, of Vatican II and, of course, of this series is that don't get rid of people. I mean, have you noticed how quickly condemnations of bad things turns into condemnations of so-called bad people? I mean, yeah, capitalism may not be good, but does that mean that capitalists are evil? Stop that. That's not the way to do it any more than you say, I mean, I have tried to be fair to socialists by saying, I think they're honest, most of them. And they're not doing this stuff to be evil. They're doing it because they think it's right. At least I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. But both the capitalists on their side and the socialists on the other side demonize the actual people, not the ideas. So that you don't want to get rid of people, just the bad ideas. And which means that, as the Catholic Church has always taught, and is, is this is the real message of Vatican II and Vatican I and everything else in the Catholic social teaching, is that get rid of sins, not the sinners. It, it's a dead end. I'll do that. <clears throat> Appreciate it, Mike. Oh, I forgot to turn the light on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were starting to go into the dark. There. Yeah, sitting in the dark. Go to the light. Sitting in the cave. Ah. <laughs> I appreciate Michael as always. And uh, yes, uh, what's next week's going to be entitled? Well, next week's we're going to go into some of the efforts or the, the major effort that was carried on after Vatican II to try to insert, you know, the ideas of Pius XI and of Kelso and others into the into the public debate. And I take it from something that Father William Faree, who was a co-founder of CESJ, the Center for Economic and Social Justice, said when he addressed the lay commission on the economy in 1984, on September 11th, 1984, believe it or not. I mean, 
two good dates there, September 11th and 1984. He called it a dialogue of the deaf. Yeah, September 11th, 1985, P. Rose hit, uh, hit number 4192, breaking Ty Cobb's record. <laughs> Unfortunately, a year before that, Father Faree and Dr. Norman Curlin struck out with the late commission. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, appreciate it as always. Oh, okay.